Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschow, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 24, Traits Deep Dive, part three. In the first part of this deep dive series, we talked about how to write and implement traits. In the second part, we talked about using traits as bounds on generic types. In this third and hopefully final part, we're going to look at using traits directly in argument and return positions, including the new impletrate and dine trait syntaxes. And we'll also cover the important notion of object safety. First, though, something new, a corporate sponsorship. Over the last few years, I've had a number of opportunities for company sponsorships of the podcast. I've turned them all down because none of them were really good fits. Today, however, I have one that is a great fit. Parity Technologies is advancing the state-of-the-art in decentralized technology. Their flagship software is the Parity Ethereum client, but they're also building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Their next big project is Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interop in decentralized systems. And Parity uses Rust for its trifecta of safety, speed, and correctness, and they're hiring Rust developers. So if you'd like to work on any of those projects, check out their jobs at paritytech.io slash jobs. Thanks to Parity for sponsoring the show. So let's get to it. First, though, a quick correction from the last trait deep dive episode. Thoughtful commenters on both Reddit and Hacker News correctly pointed out that I was mistaken in my discussion of universal and existential types. I said that in the case of generics with trait bounds, arguments are always universal and return values are always existential. But that's not true with generics. The iterator collect method I discussed on the show, for example, is a prime case where the caller is actually in control of and specifies the return type. So thanks for that correction. There are several ways you've been able to use traits without generics since Rust 1.0. However, they had some gotchas. So how do we talk about these things? I've spent a while thinking about it, and I had gotten stuck repeatedly. Happily, a couple weeks ago, a reader of my Exploring Four Languages blog post series had a question from the most recent post I put up there a few months ago. In that post, I noted that Rust lets us write out function types as type aliases if we want. But I noted that writing out type aliases for functions is not something we usually see in Rust. This reader asked, could you give a small code example of how you would use a function type alias like this in Rust? And as I reflected on it, I realized this is a perfect setup for the rest of this episode. One time when it's convenient to write out an alias for a function, not just for narrowing a generic or something like that, is when you have some complex or nested transformation you want to apply to a data structure, say in the context of a standard iter iterator map invocation. The example that came to mind is writing a function which lets us get the distances from one set of points to another origin point or comparison point. So we'll assume some basic machinery here. We're going to use the standard F32 and ops sub, that's the subtraction modules. And then we're going to define a point which has X and Y properties, which are F32, and we'll derive default for that. And then we'll implement the subtraction operator for this point. So if we wanted to get the distances between one of these points and another, we can do that in line. We'll just use the Pythagorean theorem. So if we have our function main, which has a point A, whose x is 1.0 and y is 2.0, and a, another point B, whose x is minus 4.5 and y is 12.2, 
Well, I don't want to try to figure that out by hand. So we'll just say, let the change between the two be a minus b. That'll be a point. And then the distance between the two will be change.x.powi2. So that's the x value squared. And the same for y. And then the square root of both. So far, so good. But what if we had a bunch of these points? Say we had a whole vector of them, and we wanted to get each of their distance from another point. Say how far they were from the origin. Then it makes sense to iterate over them using the iterator map method. And to do that, we'll need a closure. So we'll have some list of points. And then we can have the origin. This is why we defined. And then we can have the origin. This is why we derived default. So let the origin be point default. And then the distances would be a finally at the end a vec of f32s and this would be points dot iter so that we've got an iterator borrowing these points dot map and then we would have a closure which takes a reference to a point and does exactly what we did above and then we can collect at the end we might find this get the distance between two points function useful so we might want to extract it and we could then extract just a simple function which takes two points by reference and returns the distance between them. So this would be a function named distance between, and the arguments would be a and b. Those are both references to points, and it'll return an f32, and the body's just what we've already talked about. This is fine. When we want to use it in the context we laid out above, we'd have a closure that takes a point and then calls distance between and reference to the point and reference to the origin. That would be the whole body of our map invocation. We can, however, go one step further and create a function which we can sort of preload with the desired comparison point. We could write a function distance from, which takes a point in as an argument, and then returns a function which takes another point as its argument and returns the distance between the two. The reason we might want to do that is then we could write the invocation like this. Let the origin be the default value of point, and then let distances be a vector of f32s, and that'll equal points.iter.map distance from reference to the origin dot collect. So that's a lot clearer to read. It was a lot easier to say for sure. Unfortunately, though, writing out the signature for that function has been a pretty complicated thing historically. For one thing, you had to wrap it up behind a heap-allocated pointer, so it needed to be something like a box of the type function taking a point and returning an f32. And it turns out it's really hard to write this type and get the lifetimes all lining up if you want to use references instead of moving all the point instances. You end up writing a function named distance from, which has a lifetime a, and a lifetime b, which outlives a, and the offset, which has that second lifetime b. So this is the point that we want to measure everything against, and that has to outlive the reference we're going to return. And this is going to return a box wrapping a function, which takes a reference to a point with lifetime a, and returns an f32, and the lifetime a applies to this whole box as well. Whew, that's complicated. Look at the show notes to actually see it. And then what we'll return is box new, move, and then the same body we've had before. So we're moving the closure out. We're returning a closure from this function, and we have to wrap that up in a box. Oh, there's a lot going on here. It would be nice, getting back to my reader's question, after all, function is a trait. It'd be handy to write an alias for this. Something like type distance from lifetime A equals function, a point with lifetime A returns an F32 with that same lifetime scope. 
then we could use that in this definition. And we could just say, this is a function named distance from with the same lifetimes A and B outlives A, and an offset that we're measuring against, which has lifetime B, and it returns distance from lifetime A. Unfortunately, that specific definition isn't valid. Remember, we had to wrap a box around it before. So the correct definition using a box would be to wrap it up in a box at the call site. So it would return a box around distance from with lifetime A. That is an improvement in a number of ways. But with Rust 1.26, we got Impultrate. So can't we just use that here? It would be really nice to write that same type annotation above and then use Impultrate with it instead. Function distance from those same lifetimes and the same offset argument returning Impul distance from with that lifetime A. Unfortunately, we can't do this yet. Type aliases cannot be used for trait types like this. However, I'm not the first one to think it'd be handy. RFC 1733, trait aliases, will give us just that. And the syntax would be trait distance from with lifetime A equals, well, <laughs> the same thing we've been saying before. The only difference is trait instead of type. So someday we'll see that. Why exactly would we want to use trait instead of just returning a box value here? It's a little less typing, but does that really matter? Most obviously, it is less typing. It does simplify that non-alias function signature and implementation. It can read function distance from with, again, the lifetimes A and B outlives A, and the offset being this reference to a point with lifetime B, and it just returns impl function taking a point with lifetime A and returning an F32. And then the body of our function is just move a closure taking point and returning the same body of the function we've had from the beginning. The two big changes are both with box. It's gone from the signature and it's gone from the body of the function. Historically, we always had to return any trait object, that is any piece of data where all we care about is that it implements a specific trait, like being a function, behind a pointer. The reason is that a trait object could be pointing to all different sorts of sizes of things. A two-variant enum and a 40-field struct can implement the same trait. But the Rust compiler requires that every output from a function be the same size. It needs that guarantee to set things up on the stack correctly. The only candidate, historically, has been a heap-allocated pointer, something like a box, which is always the same size. A regular reference is always the same size too, of course, but then we would need a lifetime to tie that reference to, and... Well, there isn't one available. Whatever item we define in the body of this function actually has to be moved out of it, or it gets dropped at the end of the function. So our only option was a heap-allocated pointer for things like this function type. This had a couple important consequences. First, we always had to pay the price of that heap allocation. Second, and more importantly, this also requires dynamic dispatch. Looking up the specific function to execute from a vtable at runtime, instead of being able to do this at compile time. One of the main reasons for the monomorphization we talked about in the previous episode is to get rid of this runtime overhead. We trade it for a small increase in binary size, but faster runtime. And those costs are small. That are often trivial. You don't always need to worry about heap allocations. It's fine. But they are real costs, and in some of the contexts where Rust is most useful, they do matter. So those are important limitations. And many of those limitations also applied to the other place you might have been tempted to use a trait all by itself, the type of an argument. For example, you might think you could just write function foo taking a thing which is of type some trait, and then the body of that function. But the same basic issue is at play here as in the return type context. Rust needs an item with a constant size to be able to do this correctly. Again, it has to lay out the stack. So we take a reference to the trait type. 
using a pointer means, once again, we have a type with a known size. Function foo is a, takes an argument thing, which is a reference to some trait. We could also have a heap allocated pointer here, but in general, we don't have to. We can just take a reference to some trait, and both regular references and any type which implements the borrow trait will work. So you get it for free. For a refresher on borrow, you can go back and listen to episode 18. In any case, we have to put the trait type behind a reference, and so again, we have dynamic dispatch with that small runtime cost. Though, in this case, we don't necessarily have a heap allocated pointer backing that trait object. This is extremely handy. Anytime we don't have a single specific type we're going to be returning from or dealing with in any given function. For example, anywhere that we might be returning different specific iterator subtypes like map and filter, or where we're operating over a heterogeneous collection, where the only thing we care about in the collection is that every item in it implements some trait. And we know enough now to see that, at least in principle, the Rust compiler should often be able to figure out exactly what type we're talking about if we want to return a trait type or take a trait type as an argument, and we're dealing with a homogeneous collection or a single instance. After all, it already does that with generics. Generic types with trait bounds do not require heap allocations or dynamic dispatch. The compiler statically figures out the types they're invoked with and return and monomorphizes them. As of Rust 1.26, the compiler can and does do this with things that are just traits. The new impl trait feature lets us monomorphize the type without having to write generics everywhere. So from our perspective writing the code, the type of a closure that we were talking about as the opening example is one that we can't name concretely. It's an anonymous type and Rust makes up a name for it at compile time. It's just something which implements the function trait with these arguments and return types. But Rust does compile it using impl trait down to that actual single function with that anonymous type. And it then has a specific return type size, so we can get rid of the pointer. No more heap allocation, no more runtime lookup cost. We don't have to put it behind a box. And that goes for both argument position and return position for, again, things like closures. So to return to my correction back at the beginning of the episode, this is where universal and existential types come into play. And I got mixed up with them because of how I had to split this episode into multiple parts. Impletrate in argument position, is a universal type. It's an any type specified by the caller, as long as it implements that trait. And impletrate in return position is an existential type. It is some specific type specified by the callee. The limitation of impletrate is all those times that we still need dynamic allocation and a heap allocated pointer. For those, we have another slight change landing for the Rust 2018 edition, which just reached stable Rust in 1.27, the dyne trait syntax. So where before we could simply write box trait or RC trait or even ampersand trait, now those invocations should be box dyne trait or RC dyne trait or ampersand dyne or ampersand mute dyne trait. The reason is to make explicit that there's a trait object in play, not just a regular struct or enum type. And that's really important for making sure that you have the right mental model in place. As I noted in my discussion of the feature in the 1.27 news episode, it also makes for a nice symmetry between trait objects with dyne trait and existential and universal types with impl trait. Now I've used the phrase trait object often throughout this episode, and for very good reason. This idea is important, indeed essential to what we're talking about. Again, anytime we're talking about dealing with some item as a trait rather than as a generic or concrete type, we're talking about this idea of trait objects, and trait objects are specifically traits behind pointers. 
These let us deal with heterogeneous types dynamically at runtime, but safely, much as interfaces do in traditional object-oriented languages. But there's a really important set of rules which govern these trait objects and let us use them safely in Rust, and these rules are called object safety. These come up anytime you're trying to use traits for this kind of dynamic abstraction, and since traits are Rust's primary tool for abstraction, well, it comes up quite a bit. A few minutes ago, I noted that the compiler requires a constant size for return values from functions. The compiler captures this with sized. It's a marker trait which tells the compiler that the item in question has a constant size known at compile time. For a review of marker traits, you can go back and listen to episode 22, where I talked about send and sync. Many of the same considerations apply here. And this marker trait has two rules attached to it for object safety. Rule one is that the trait itself cannot require that the special self type, which is the type implementing the trait, be sized. Instead, trait methods can set that requirement when needed, but only when needed, with a WHERE clause. The second rule is that all of a trait's methods must themselves be object-safe, and there are two rules defining object safety for trait methods. First, they cannot have any type parameters. They cannot be generic. Second, they must not use that special self-type themselves. These rules come down to the reality that when you're dealing with a trait object, the Rust compiler throws away the concrete types you're dealing with. It has to. It needs to treat every different concrete implementation behind the trait object the same way. But if you reference self, Rust needs to be able to get back to that concrete type. And these two things are at odds. Mostly what this means is that if you need a trait to be object safe, avoid referencing self in the trait or the methods. For further reading on object safety, because there's a lot to cover here, and I summarized it accurately, but actually wrapping your head around it can take some time, I've linked a couple things in the show notes. The first is RFC number 255, which is the formal definition of object safety for the language. The second is chapter 17 in the second edition of the Rust programming language, which explains it very helpfully and in a context where it makes a lot of sense why you need it. The third is a detailed explanation of these ideas by Huan Wilson from back around the time of the Rust 1.0 release. And at last, we have a wrap on our deep dive on traits. The next main teaching episode will be a look at unsafe and the escape hatches it does and doesn't allow. Also coming up are a look at functional programming ideas in Rust and a pair of crates you should know episodes focused on futures and Tokyo. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors include Benam Esfabode, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Ramon Buckland, Alexander Payne, Daniel Collin, Paul Naranja, John Rudnick, Marshall Clyburn, Martin Huschober, Olushe Shonaya, Hans Fjallamark, Vesa Kaila Virta, Ryan Osiel, Daniel Mason, Chip, Rafe Levine, Derek Buckley, Damian Stanton, Aaron Turon, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Dan Abrams, Nathan Scully, Zachary Snyder, Matt Rudder, and David W. Allen. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can send a one-off my way at any of a number of other services listed at the show website. Truly, more importantly, though, please tell others about the show in person, at a meetup, sharing it around in whatever social media you use, or just reviewing or recommending it in a podcast directory. I really appreciate all of those ways. Show notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash E025. The website also has scripts and code samples for most teaching episodes and transcripts for many of the interviews. 
The show's on Twitter, at NeuroStation. I'm there at Chris Kreitcho. Please do tweet at me with news. I love to hear it. You can also respond in the threads, including with corrections, on the Rust user forums, Reddit, or Hacker News. And you can always just send me an email at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding.